So I've got a lot of information to go through tonight. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time up here going back over what we've already studied the last, uh, last few times we've been together. Well, just a quick reminder of where we were. We've got Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin being questioned by what name and whose authority are you teaching in? And Peter was in the midst of the response, not in a denial of Christ, not in a denial of what he had been teaching, but he's given them a sermon very similar to what he started in the temple when they were arrested. And I think this had to take them by surprise. I don't think this is what they expected. So with that, I'm going to cover uh, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. And then I've got a couple other topics to talk about. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. So verse 11 reads, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. God bless that reading. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Help us to have clarity Help us to have understanding. I ask that you remove me out of the way. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone here. I want your word to go forth. And the last thing I would ever want to do is to misrepresent something from this pulpit. So I ask for your guidance and your leading and that your will will be done. Allow your Holy Spirit to guide the teaching. Allow your word to go forth and accomplish all that you send it forth to do because we know it will not return void. Father, we love you and thank you once more for all that you are doing, and I pray this in Christ's name. And all God's children said, Amen. Do you ever come up here feeling like you've studied enough that you're really ready? Okay. In verse 11, Peter's using Psalm 118, verse 22. And once again, we have the apostle reading from the Old Testament, from the scriptures that the Jewish people revere, showing them salvation in the Old Testament, but showing it in the name of Jesus Christ. And he's done this repeatedly in his sermons. And he's using these scriptures in the way he does, not only to just reveal the obvious truth that they can't see, but these are verses that they have been using for years. They know a lot of these by heart. This particular one right here is one that they know by heart. You see, this psalm is one of what they call the Hallel Psalms. I said that right, didn't I? And um, the Hallel songs were sung at many of the festivals, notably, especially at the Passover. But they were sung in a certain order. And this was always the last one that they sung. So it was like the climax of the singing. And this song would typically begin when people were walking into the temple. So they would start outside, they would sing it in, and they would continue to sing this psalm until everyone was inside the temple. 
So this is something they know by heart, right? <clears throat> Psalm 18 was viewed as a dispute. It was, it, it was seen as being a dispute to people who had doubts that a king would win a battle, but yet he would win that battle because he was in Yahweh's hands. It was, it was viewed as a song talking about Israel and how that it was, Israel was rejected by many of the other nations, but was the chosen nation of God. So this song had a lot of different meanings to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people of that time. <clears throat> when we think about this, and I don't know how many of y'all have construction in your background, so I'm going to act like no one knows anything for just a minute, so forgive me, okay? But when we talk about builders and we talk about building stuff, constructing stuff, you see, what we're saying here in this verse, what is being said is, a particular builder can take a look at his raw materials, a stone in this, for instance, and you can say, well, this really isn't a good stone for this application, and it's not a good one for this application. Maybe we can use it over here. And they may look at it and say, well, this is, this is the cornerstone. This is the one we're going to start with. This is part of the foundation. This is a superior rock that we're going to use to support the whole building we're putting up. I mean, it could be that they throw it aside and say it's not usable for anything. Another builder can come along and pick that rock up and say, why are you throwing this away? This is the best one you've got. And he could take it and start his own building with it. So the opinions vary when you're talking about building stones. But when, what we're talking about here isn't just any stone, right? The cornerstone is the first stone used in the foundation. The cornerstone is the one that dictates the direction the building is going to be built in the placement of the building. The cornerstone is the one that everything is squared off of. The right angle from this. This wall's going this way, so this wall goes this way. The cornerstone is a very, a very important stone. It is the most important stone when you think about the size of the building, what's going to support the weight of it. When you think about we want the walls looking this way. We want the setting sun over here, so we'll turn it this way. A lot of things to consider with that stone. <clears throat> Y'all realize that this verse is used over and over again in the New Testament, right? Many times, this Psalm 118, verse 22, is referenced in the New Testament. Luke 20, and this is a little bit of a long reading, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read it. Luke 20, starting in verse 9, Jesus uses a parable. <clears throat> the parable he uses is about a vineyard, about a vineyard owner who rented the vineyard out. So it reads, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard. But the vine growers sent him away empty-handed, having beaten him. 
And he proceeded to send another slave, and when they beat him also and treated him shamefully, they sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Now the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Let's stop right there. Where have we heard this language before, beloved son? This is Jesus, right? The beloved son. I'm going to send the beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they were reasoning with one another, saying, this is the heir. Stop right there. Who's the heir? We are heirs. Who are we heirs with? We're heirs with Christ. And they said, let us kill him. Do I need to elaborate on that one? What did they do with our Jesus? Let me tell you what they did. Kill him and so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Jerusalem. The beatings. The cross. He carried the cross out of the city and they killed him. This is the Old Testament, right? Let's get get on over here to it. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Suddenly the Gentiles become a part, right? It's brought to the Jews first. Some did believe. We've seen, what, 10,000, 12,000? Some did believe. Many didn't. No, we'll give it to others. So they end up going to the Gentiles. And when they heard this, they said, may it never be. But when Jesus looked at them, he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected This became the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus is obviously using this parable as a reference to the prophets of old that had been sent. How many of them were in torment and abused and punished and some even killed, right? Lead-ins to Christ. So this is representative of Jesus himself who also would be rejected and killed. And Peter releases Psalm 118.22 on them with Jesus being the rejected cornerstone. So, so Peter is now giving them this psalm in an even more direct way than Jesus had in Luke 20 when you think about it. Jesus gave them a parable and then connected it to it and it makes sense to us today. Should have made sense to them then. But what Peter says, he's directly clarifying the parable for the Sanhedrin. In his first words in this verse, he said, He is the stone, he references Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. By you is not in Psalm 118 when you go to the Psalms and look it up. Peter put that in there. He put it in there intentionally. He wanted them to understand clearly who's doing what here. 
This is you. The word you is added by Peter in his sermon. It was intentional and clearly points out the Jewish leaders as the builders. So I told you this verse was used a lot in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Simply put, Paul is placing Jesus as the cornerstone of the spiritual temple, his bride, the church. And we could talk about different definitions for church. This is a building, and we call it the church building. But you are the church. This is a building. It can be replaced. This is a building. It provides us a place to worship. We've dedicated this building to the service of Lord. It has a level of sanctity here that we want to maintain. But you are the church. You are the body of Christ. Another one, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, <clears throat> excuse me, Zion, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Listen to this next verse. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this stumbling they were also appointed. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word. That is the responsibility of man, right? And to this stumbling they were also appointed. That is God's sovereignty, right? These nuggets are laying all over the scriptures. When you really start to dig and look for them, they're laying everywhere. Those who stumble over the rejected stone are appointed to do so. They do it of their own choice. They're being disobedient. They're responsible for their actions. <clears throat> what Peter's doing in quoting Psalm 118 is exposing the leaders of the Jewish nation as rejecting God again, just as their forefathers had done and that they themselves had done when they crucified Christ. Jesus Christ is the despised stone scorned by the leaders of Israel but exalted by God to place at the highest honor the place of highest significance. 
God has made him the cornerstone, which is the most essential part of God's plan for building his church. This church, Shepherd's Rock Bible Church, we weren't in this building at this time, at that time, but uh, when we started our first service, the opening scripture was Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. I know that because I got to read it, and it was an honor to do so. But that verse says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, or say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This rock in Matthew 16 is the cornerstone Referenced in all these verses that we've just read. It's in the Old Testament. The Catholic Church viewed this rock as being Peter himself. They call him the first pope. Once again, they've missed the mark. The stone is Christ. The cornerstone is Christ. The capstone is Christ. The rock is Christ. Christ is our rock, right? Now, sometime back, I stood here and I talked about dual application prophecies. You all remember talking about that? Where it has one meaning in the Old Testament and it also has an application later. Spurgeon saw this as one of those. I was waiting. I was waiting. <laughs> He saw this psalm as a dual application prophecy, an application to David, he states. A wise king and a valiant leader are a stone on which to build the national fabric. David had been rejected by those in authority, but God placed him in a position of high honor and great usefulness, making him the nation's cornerstone. In application to Christ, he says, they could see no excellence in him to build on. He did not fit their need or fit their ideal of a national church. He was a stone from another quarry to them, not after their mind or taste. Jesus Christ is the stone the church is built on. Belief in him is the rock upon which we stand. Those who were closest to the stone had failed to recognize it, appreciate it, honor it, They'd cast it aside in favor of their own taste, of their own beliefs. And what the Sanhedrin had rejected, God had vindicated. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated that it is a supreme tragedy of all history that when men and women are confronted by the only one who can solve the problems and answer the questions, they reject him with scorn and derision. So I'm going to stop there on verse 11. 
And I want to point out one word here, and the word is rejected. Rejected in the Greek is a word pronounced exuthaneo. Exuthaneo. And it, and it properly means rejected. There are a couple of other words that can be used for rejected. But this one was used because it doesn't just mean rejection or rejected. It means rejected with scorn, even with persecution. It's displaying the hatred of the Jewish leadership and their denial of Christ as the Messiah. Numbers of times they have sought to take Jesus and to attempt to kill him. But his time had not come yet, right? And he escaped into the crowds and he escaped in various means. But numbers of common people had chosen to follow him. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is the gospel in one verse, basically, isn't it? Salvation in no one else. Now, the Sanhedrin would have agreed with them that God was the source of salvation. They, they would have agreed with Peter that, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the source of our salvation. However, Peter is insisting that the name of Jesus Christ is the exclusive means through which God's salvation will be poured out. That saving power can only be experienced through the name of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin had the ultimate responsibility of showing salvation to the Israelites. They contained the leaders of the Jewish faith. But thus far, their instructions to people had been telling them to perform various numbers of works for salvation. Some of them according to the law for salvation. Some of them man-made. Peter is preaching salvation that comes through the name of Christ. Isn't it interesting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when we, we hear about the coming birth of Christ? It says, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For he will save his people from their sins. You could put because in there, and it would mean the same thing. Call him Jesus because his very name bleeds salvation for his people. Peter's statement is an exclusive statement. The statement he makes in verse 12, there's no room for tolerance here. There's no room for any other religious system. If we claim this in our society today, you're going to be accused of being full of hate. You're going to be accused of thinking yourself as some kind of high and mighty, legalistic, You're going to be persecuted for saying these things. You're going to have people that you thought was your friends that are going to walk away from you. You're going to have people in your family that are going to turn their back on you. You could lose your job. And depending on where you are, you could lose your very life. I think it was in Nigeria. It's one Christian every two hours a day dies, is murdered. 
murdered. Our brothers and our sisters are being slaughtered one every two hours. But all things considered, we've got to be willing to speak the bold truth. This is a truth that must go forward. It's part of the Great Commission. It's what we've been told that must be done. The truth does not have to be hateful. It does not have to be spiteful. It does not have to be brutal. brutal. But it needs to be direct. It needs to be the truth. No beating around the bush. Here's the truth. We should speak to the lost in a truly concerned way. We need to be concerned for their eternal being. These bold truths should be spoken in winsome manners. But you've got to be prepared to be mocked. You remember what happened the day of Pentecost? The scoffers were there for Peter even though the Holy Spirit was raging through the building. The noise of the Holy Spirit drew the crowd in so they could mock Peter for preaching. Don't think that it will be any less for you. Our society today is going to be offended by any thought of Jesus Christ and any thought of not being able to save itself. No other name under heaven. None. Only this one. And these words truly show Peter's conviction of who Christ is, what Christ has done, why he came. He's convicted that there is no other place that salvation can be found. It can't be found from the high priest standing and sitting in front of him. He's sitting in front of the high priest. It can't be found from the captain of the temple guard. It can't be found from any one or all of the elders, the scribes, the heads of the priestly families that are there. The very holy temple itself can't save them. The altar of the holy of holies cannot save them. Peter is telling them only Jesus, the one you rejected, is the way. There's no other name for which your sins can be forgiven. Jesus tried to tell them this many times. You have John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to me, come to the Father except through me. No man. I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. We talked about a word called sozo. The Greek is sozo. It was used for a word we call saved. This word is used again here for salvation. This is the first verse in the book of Acts that actually uses the word salvation. It was used before and it was a little bit, could have been confusing for some because we were talking about saved from his sickness and that could apply to the physical healing that happened clearly 
and can also apply to the spiritual healing that happened in his salvation. Peter closes this verse with a definite statement. And pretty interesting. He doesn't say can be saved, may be saved, should be saved. He says must. We must be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. We must be saved through his name. There's no other way. A divine necessity which God has established according to his plan and his degree to decree to save his people in no other manner than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Period. <clears throat> so I'm going to go away from verse 12 and I'm going to speak a little bit about bold preaching. And some of what I found here came from a book called Peter, Eyewitness of His Majesty. It was written by a man named Edward Donnelly. I don't quote him here, but his writing offered me some direction in seeing some things that I had read over a dozen times this week in the bold preaching of Peter. So I'm just going to give some kudos there where it's due. When reading through the book of Acts, one thing is crystal clear. Peter was fully faithful to preach the gospel of Christ boldly. The Bible has informed us of his bold teaching, but as I said a second ago, unless it's pointed out, we're subject to read over it and not even realize what it said because that's the way we read. It's as much a memorization and say the word that's written and never give thought to what it actually means. And I'm guilty, and I know many others are. But the Greek word used in reference to this type of teaching, preaching, a bold teaching, a bold preaching, is a word pronounced parousia. P-A-R-R. E-S-I-A. It simply put, it means saying everything. This word, <clears throat> Peter's giving raw truth, direct truth, compassionate truth, clear truth, clearly the whole truth. He's saying everything. If you go to the classical Greek, you'll see this term, parousia, is used in reference to the right of every citizen to speak freely. It's the right to speak frankly. So when you take this to the biblical sense, it becomes a freedom to proclaim the belief, and in this case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parousia. Par parousia. I'm sorry, I struggle with that. <clears throat> parousia. The belief behind this term leads one to the idea of no one person should be intimidated until silence is the end result. Everyone should use parousia or bold, clear, uninhabited speech. This word is used in Mark chapter 8 and John chapter 11. The translators have used the word plainly as a defining term for this. This term is used in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 to refer to a joyful confidence before God. Let me point out a few examples of some bold speech. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 29, men, brothers, and this is part of Peter's sermon, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You remember that verse? You were here. I may confidently say to you, bold speaking. He's speaking to the entire crowd. He's speaking with confidence. He is speaking freely. Confident speech is bold speech. Acts 4.13, the next verse we will get into in this chapter. <clears throat> now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. When I read that, I was kind of like, finally? You're finally able to connect them with Jesus? Really? The listeners observed and recognized Peter and John's bold teaching, their bold preaching. Confidence in the truth of what they were saying was evident to all. Bold speaking is here. Acts 4.29 And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. Here again, we have this word confidence. A key word in this verse. Peter's praying that they will continue to be strengthened, that they will continue to be spirit-filled in the preaching to come. Verse 31, just after this, reads, And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. In the book of Puritan's Theology, it's pointed out in there that the Puritans truly believed in bold preaching. They believed that it needed to be done painfully. When I say painfully, I'm not talking about sticking yourself in the arm with a needle while you do it or while you listen. Painfully in this, in this manner means to be performed in a painstaking manner. The speaker should not be negligent in his study in his prayer, in the manner in which he walks, a commitment to bringing God's word to the people, it should be done painfully, painstakingly, plainly. They firmly believe that the uneducated need to be able to understand what was spoken. The teaching of the scriptures needed to be in words that even anyone could understand. Even today, there's very few people that have enough knowledge of the Greek or the Hebrew to use a lexicon or an interlinear, to use the alphabet by itself. Most people really struggle there. And I'm not saying it's a necessity. It just kind of shows the need for plain speaking, plain teaching. Church history. I'm nowhere near as knowledgeable about church history as I ought to be. Many people know nothing of the John Owens's of the Martin Luther's, of all the martyrs that died during the Reformation period, sacrifices that were made, the William Tyndale's, the Wycliffe's. Speaking plainly was important. Faithfully, the preacher should yearn 
for the honor of Jesus Christ, the salvation of the lost, and the edification of the believers. Wisely, preaching should be done in a manner most apt to prevail with the hearers, gravely, with intensity. Preaching should be lovingly done, needs to contain a level of zeal, a level of desire for the well-being of souls and salvation and edification. It needs to be done earnestly. The speaker should be inwardly persuaded that what he's saying is true. He should be convinced in his soul that what he's reading is true. His belief is strong. In order to preach or teach in a bold manner, as just described, one really needs to be spirit-filled. And if we go back to verse 8, you'll see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. But what is spirit-filled? What's this mean? I mean, we, re we remember that the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we have these other verses that keeps talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is what spirit-filled character looks like, but the command here is to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. You be filled with the Spirit. How do you do that? It was a struggle for me. I haven't talked to Josh for a while, you know. It's just, I'm really struggling here. And then you have the fruits of the Spirit, which we're all familiar with out of Galatians chapter 5. We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become those with vainglory, challenging one another, envying one another. These are all characteristics as well. Also, we should walk in the Spirit. If you're doing, if you're showing all this fruit, you're walking in the Spirit. That's what this is saying. If you're showing all these things, you must have crucified your flesh of its passions and desires. If you're, if, if you're at this point, that's what it's saying. But all of these verses are a discussion on what the character of a believer should be. This is what spirit-filled looks like. And quite simply, what this world needs is a bunch of spirit-filled people showing these fruits and displaying these characters. We need more teachers and preachers and husbands and wives and children and leaders and citizens and government officials and Homeless people that are spirit-filled. It's a little uncomfortable at first talking about the spirit because it's almost like you're at the charismatic church down the road and 
I'm not, I'm not talking about craziness. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit living within you to give you strength when you need it. How do I have more of that? How do I obtain this command to be filled with the Spirit? What does this mean? And the mistake we make when we read these things is that somehow we think it's possible for us to manage being Spirit-filled. Something that we could possibly do that will fill us with the Holy Spirit. Like it's some act that we need to do or some special request we need to make. We cannot fill ourselves. We cannot. You were filled when your heart was regenerated and you quit hating God. You quit hating Jesus and you saw the reason to love him and you began to build a relationship with him and you were saved, you were born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. That's when you were filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're saved here tonight, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You will have days that you don't feel like it. You will have times that you do feel like it. There'll be times when you'll feel like he's so far away. And there'll be times that you'll feel like he's just right here. But you are filled with the Holy Spirit as you sit here with us right now. If you're saved, if you're a believer. So, so what must we do? You know, the first thing we need to do is pray. Prayer does change things, even that's kind of a, uh, an old wives' tale or one of those phrases you hear. I didn't find it in the scripture anywhere. But there's some truth in there. You have this prayer request. I made one earlier about Marcus. I'm really excited that God is even toying with the idea of answering that prayer that we all thought he was done. We all thought he was gone and his two little girls is not going to have a dad anymore and we're losing a co-worker and, and, and he's somebody that everybody just likes. And we may get to see a miracle happen. Prayer does change things. I'm not saying he's getting healed because I prayed for him. It may have been that it was, it was his time to go. I accept that. It may still be. He's got an eight-hour surgery he's in right now going through this. And the answer to my prayer may be no. It may be God's will to take him home. And what prayer changes in that scenario is he will change me. He will change my ability to withstand the trial, withstand the pain, the hurt, the sorrow. And he'll do that for you too. But we have to pray. And I struggle. I'm not going to lie to you. I wish my prayer life was a lot stronger than it is. But if we will, Paul Washer talked about, don't try to pray 30 minutes tonight if you're really struggling with it. And you know how Paul is. Just do it for two minutes. And try to do it for three tomorrow. So if you try to do it for 30 minutes tonight and you haven't been praying in weeks... You will fall on your face. But if you start a little at a time, it'll get better. But prayer, prayer is, is necessary. In prayer, we should recognize that God is all-powerful. God's sovereignty is something that we uphold here. He is in control There's nothing that's going to happen out here that's going to surprise him. 
And when we pray, we should recognize him that way. And we know that he can intercede in any scenario that our life brings our way. But we know that he has a master plan. And all things are going to work out to the good of those that believe, that love him, or called according to his purpose. His plan may be to take you down a different path. But prayer is something that we can do that will bring us closer to God. Our union with Christ will be strengthened. Our relationship will grow. Our trust will grow. And we'll hear more about faith later. Ephesians 1, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayers. Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus, not because they're afflicted, but because he's heard of their faith and their love for one another. When's the last time you prayed for your brother or sister in Christ because of their dedication or their willingness to serve or some help they provided for you or time they gave you or even someone else? So what is Paul praying for? He goes on to tell us in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you what? The spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him. Well, what else? Verse 18, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory and his inheritance in the saints. In verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us? who believe according to the working and the might of his strength. This is all the works of the Spirit, right? Paul is praying that they'll be filled with the Spirit. He goes on with the next four verses to show these types of prayer and how they can increase your faith in the gospel. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 <clears throat> For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family member in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love. And it goes on. Praying for the Spirit. Prayer for spiritual power. We must pray. We should pray for ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should pray for others to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A life with plentiful prayer provides fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to reside in. Even at our busiest times, we need to hit the pause button and pray. Mark chapter 1, Jesus cast out a demon in the synagogue, out of a guy in the synagogue. And then he heals Peter Simon's mother-in-law. Y'all knew Peter was married, right? And he, he goes into this house where he's staying. Verse 33 states that the whole city of Capernaum, Capernaum 
gathered at the door where Jesus was staying, the whole city gathered at the door of that house. Many people were healed. Many demons were cast out. <clears throat> Many people didn't receive a miracle. Many doesn't mean all. Oh, there was some number there where that the healing didn't happen. But you got this huge crowd of people outside the door needing Jesus, wanting Jesus. Heal my son, heal my mother, heal my self. So after these people, he did this healing. It says he went back inside, and I assume he had to rest. You think about when the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of his garment, what happened? His power went forth. <clears throat> and he said, who touched my garment? He was a human being just like we are. He was God 100%, yes, but he was a human as well. He got thirsty, got hungry. He got tired. Assuming he went in and went to sleep. And you can read through those verses. And then he got up and came out the door. Well, what do you think those people that didn't get healed did? Do you think they went home? Chances are there were a bunch of them asleep outside that door waiting for him to come out. And somehow he escaped again. What did he escape to go do? He went to pray with his father. Even in the midst of all the healing and all the casting out of demons, he knew he had to be with his father. He had to go in prayer to his father. If he had to do it, if he needed it that badly, so do we. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Stephen is selected to be a deacon and is described as they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Implication here is that faith and being filled with the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. Same thing in verse 11 of, or chapter 11 of Acts. Barnabas, Barnabas described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Once again, hand in hand. Galatians 3, 5 reads, So then does he who provides you with the Spirit work miracles among you? Do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law? The obvious answer is no. He doesn't do it by works of the law. Well, how does he do it? By hearing with faith. Faith, hearing, I've heard that before, right? Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith is not something that you just conjure up, that you generate within yourself. It comes from hearing the word of Christ. It's a gift that comes along with the reading of scriptures. It comes along with hearing the word. Yeah, you, you can say you've got some input there that you had to get up and come to church or you had to sit down and read your Bible. And, and we can have that discussion. Faith comes from the Lord. It comes from his word. So we got faith and we got full of the Holy Spirit. We're getting closer here. If you want to be able to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to be prayed up. You need to be studied up. 
You need to be under sound doctrine. You need to believe. And it's at this point that you can be, you will be, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in your time of need, remember the scripture from last week, Luke 12 said, Now when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to say. Don't worry about what you're going to speak in your defense or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are, what you ought to say. If you're prayed up, studied up, and your belief leaves no doubt, you can and will be full of the Holy Spirit in the hour that you need it most. Now what he says? One last act that Peter and John really gave us an example of is humility and humbling themselves. We talked about how they put up no resistance. They were completely in the submission of the will of God that whatever would come with them would be according to God's will. And the words that they needed to say would be spoken. They had placed themselves in God's hands. No force can withstand the onslaught of the Holy Spirit. It's when we arrive at that state of mind where we can give ourselves over to complete and total submission to the Holy Spirit that God will most glorify himself in using us and being his mouthpiece and being his tool and whatever that, that need is. It's when we admit our helpless state and submit to the sovereignty of God that we are most capable. You see, you must first be emptied of selfish desire to see the power of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Submission does not come easily to most of us. It doesn't to me. But submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is being strong in your faith. Scriptures have clearly taught us that when we are weak, then we are strong. We even make little children's songs about it. Yes, Jesus loves me. That comes from Corinthians. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Stay with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are glorious, but we are without honor. Another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, hardships, for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. Peter and John understood this. Paul understood what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I've sought clarity in the working and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But quite honestly, clear step-by-step -step understanding in one chapter of the Bible, you're not going to find it that way. It's just not presented in that manner. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual thing that finite man struggles with. He struggles to be clear and understand it deeply. However, his presence in the regenerated man should be crystal clear. It's not hard to see. We know that when a person is saved, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a guide for us. 
He convicts us when our leanings are more worldly than godly. He's our mediator in our prayers, correcting those prayers when we don't know what to pray, when we don't know what to say or how to say it. He's our comforter. He provides strength to go on when it seems that our entire world is collapsing. He teaches us true understanding of the Bible. In another book, Richard Taylor, it's called Life in the Spirit, and I do not, I'm going to clearly say this, I do not recommend his teaching in all things theology, soteriology, whatever, but he's got an analogy in this book that I came across that helped me to understand something. The Holy Spirit fills us now. If you take a sponge and you fill it with water, and you hold it out in an extended hand, what happens? Water drips out of it, right? That should be the Holy Spirit in your everyday life. The Holy Spirit should be dripping out. When the pressures of life come down upon you, and that sponge becomes squeezed, what happens? The water comes gushing out. This is the way the Holy Spirit is with us in our times of trial. This is what he does for us. The big failure in his analogy is, is that this sponge of the Holy Spirit never has to be refilled. They can squeeze that thing from now till kingdom come, and the flow of water coming out of that will be like the rock in the Old Testament for Moses. It will never end. That Holy Spirit will be there for you. He will strengthen you in your time of need. The Holy Spirit is there. He wants to be there for us. So I have to ask the question at this point. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? If you're saved, yes. So what now? Ensure your prayer life is where it needs to be. Ensure you're studying the word with zeal. Ensure that God's sovereignty reigns supreme in our lives. If you're unsaved and you don't have the Holy Spirit, now what? Peter would say, repent and believe. My prayer for us this evening is that we'll identify those gaps that are in our relationship with Christ and we'll begin to mend them. We'll begin to close them. Our prayer life will become stronger. Our faith will grow. Our relationship with them will grow. We'll become more confident. Our trust level will be higher. And when it comes time to boldly speak, I pray that we'll be able to stand as Peter did before the Supreme Court. I thank you for your attention. And uh, it's good to be in the house of God. If everyone will stand. Josh, would you mind to pray for us? Thank you.